0: All right, let's go James chapter 2. James chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room little racks beneath the seats. I say it every week, but I say it every week for a reason. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, take that physical one home. Uh, we believe that God has um, given us His Word for all kinds of important things, but at the top of the mountain, the very most important reason He's given us the Scriptures is to teach us about Himself. He wants you to know Him. And so if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, then um, it makes sense to be chasing after him in the scriptures. And so if you don't have a copy of your own, take that one. It's free. You can have it. Uh, I think there's a couple of Bibles that have ended up in the lost and found as well. Those are prettier um, and they you just have to scratch somebody else's name off. You'll be good. All right. So we have now made it to week number 12 of our effort to walk through uh, the letter of James together. James is a letter that's written by uh, James. That's how he got it gets its names real real brilliant like, like that, right? A real creative naming of Bible things. Uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus, not to be confused with several other Jameses in the New Testament, but this one's definitely the half-brother of Jesus, a guy who we're told uh, in the gospel accounts did not believe Jesus's claims of messiahship, did not believe Jesus to be everything that Jesus claimed to be, uh, but that changed for James real fast after the resurrection. We're told explicitly uh, that James gets a special visit from Jesus, all right? He's one of the people that. They got a special post-resurrection visit, and now James is in, all right? Uh, I don't know what that conversation looked like. I don't know what big bro said to little bro, but whatever it was, James is now on team. Jesus is Lord, all right? And so he's following Jesus. He ultimately becomes a leader in the church, and even beyond that, he ultimately dies as a martyr because he won't won't stop preaching the gospel. So James is in, all right? You don't get to that point if you're just on the fence about stuff. James is in. And so the earliest forms of persecution uh, are happening kind of in and around this time. We think that the letter was probably, our best guess is that it was probably written somewhere in the early to mid-40s A.D. Uh, and it's written to Christians that had been scattered around uh, throughout uh, kind of the known world, or at least that, that part of the map, uh, because of this persecution that kind of ramps up the earliest forms of persecution against the church had kind of caused jewish background christians to spread out from the city of jerusalem and into what we would probably describe as the kind of the eastern end of the mediterranean if you have one of those fancy bibles in the back of your our fancy maps in the back of your bible uh you we're talking about palestine syria and then the regions of asia minor right? at the same time though not only are christians Jewish background Christians beginning to scatter out into all of these other places, but they're going into heavily Gentile places, as in non-Jewish background people. And these people are hearing the gospel, and they're responding to the gospel, and they're becoming Christians, right? And so this created a lot of issues that now had to be figured out, like common sense questions. Namely, how much of Jewish religious identity and practice was now understood to be Christian? Like, does it all carry over? Or does none of it carry over? Or does some of it carry over? That's a a massive question to answer. What things served a temporary purpose? What things were forever? And how do we decide? And James wades into that debate. That's basically what the book of James is. Eventually, a formal answer will come. It hasn't arrived yet, but it hasn't happened by the the writing of James's letter. Uh, But James has got some folks uh, in his audience who think that the entirety of the Jewish law is in place. And everything a good Jew is supposed to do, Christians were supposed to do too. And he's got some other people in his audience who think that nothing in the law is now valid, that everything goes away because Jesus just wrecked the whole system, right? And so what do we do with that? He's got a lot of other people shucking the entirety of the law, all in the name of grace. Forget about what you do, it's only what you believe that ultimately matters. And so the last couple of weeks, we're, uh, we're coming back from our Easter break, last couple of weeks, we began to look at James addressing this faith versus works divide. This faith versus works divide. We, we specifically began by looking at it through the lens of showing partiality, right? James argues that, how we treat people isn't just about how we treat people. But it's also a pretty accurate indicator of what it is we do and do not believe. Pretty accurate indicator of what it is we actually value and chase after. But then last week, James introduced the logic that an inconsistency between professed faith and follow through action, that an inconsistency between those two things is actually bigger and more dangerous divide than we all like to believe that it is. He carves out a category for people who think that they will receive mercy from Jesus, but are very mistaken in that. They will actually receive judgment instead. Can I say the quiet thing out loud? That's a scary category, right? And if I'm reading James right, I think think he means it to be a scary category. So here's what we're going to have to do this morning. James is about to take the next step into that logic. And we're going to have to put on our big boy pants to read it. (laughs) Because without them, we'll be in trouble. He's going to continue his argument into the next section. Look at verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. He says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Have you ever been in a situation... Where someone asked you a question and you were just barely smart enough to know not to open your dumb mouth. We all been there, right? Like, like any attempt to try to answer was going to make the hole much deeper. It was only gonna show, we're only gonna reveal just how little you understood of the situation. Welcome to exactly one of those moments, right? James asks a couple of rhetorical questions here, and the o- there's only one correct answer in his mind. There's only one way that this, these questions get answered. He says, what good is it, my brothers? What, like what benefit could you possibly have in claiming a faith that is absent of works? Can that faith actually save someone? And The obvious answer is that it can't, right? There's really no wiggle room on that. James is, is as emphatic as anyone can be here. I mean, he dropped a my brothers on them, right? So if I could faithfully restate, or at least try to faithfully restate James's main thesis, it would be this. Faith that does not go to work, does not work. Faith that does not go to work, does not work at all. Now, I don't know if the coffee has kicked in for you yet this morning, but that's a pretty bold claim. Right? Like, think through that for a second, and all the things that that means. In fact, that, that's a claim that stands in that many believe, I think, stands in direct opposition to some other things, other claims that the Bible makes. But James asserts this claim as if it's a truth so obvious that no one would be dumb enough to doubt it. Which means, James has intentionally painted himself into a corner here. Either James is very, very right, or James is very, very wrong. And there's no in between. So what do we do? Well, James brought the receipts, so let's let, let's dig into them. Verse fifteen. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled," without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Alright, so. James gives another hypothetical example of caring for others. It's not the first time he's done this throughout the letter. He's given a few already. And all of them are leaning on the heavier side of things when it comes to, you know, as examples go. This this was no different. This was just as heavy. uh, He describes a scenario where a brother or sister comes to you in severe need. And he's not talking about, like, Actual siblings, literal siblings, your family. Uh, He's talking about spiritual siblings based on some other things that we know he said. Other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would argue, I would argue, not everybody does, but I would argue that he's most likely referring to people who are in the same local congregation with you. There's an assumption of a family dynamic here that seems to understand, like on a personal level, what the need is. And it's not just some random person you interacted with. No, you see their need because you're around their need. Some have historically used these couple of verses as an argument for how Christians ought to be open-handed uh, and giving towards literally everyone in need. And don't get me wrong, I think Christians should be incredibly generous, extravagantly generous even. Um, in fact, I think Christians ought to be generous on a level that dumbfounds the rest of the world think we ought to confuse them by it um the problem is you can't make that argument from this text it's just not there to try and make an argument for a general benevolence from this text is a perfect example of ignoring what the bible actually says it also grossly misses james's point in what he's trying to say um if you're a christian you have been given a new identity in Christ. You are now uh, reconciled and adopted as a child of God. Sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, right? That's the biblical language. But that identity also comes with a new family relationship, the church. And so you have brothers and sisters in the faith. That's why we call them brothers and sisters, brothers and so-and-so, and sisters so-and-so. It's kind of weird, but that's what we do. That's why we do it. Now, I don't know what it was like in your family growing up, but in healthy families, all right? Let's just think about the hypothetical healthy family, knowing that your brother or sister is in severe need probably ought to create something in you to want to help them, right? We all on the same page about that? It ought to stir something in you to help them, and an absence of that stirring is proof of an incredibly significant problem, right? If you just don't care, you may not be actually brothers and sisters, in James' hypothetical example, they are poorly clothed and lacking food, meaning they are cold and hungry. He's not talking about your brother and having to fight off all of his bad business ideas. No, I'm not going to invest in that. He's not talking about how your sister uh, is you know, repeatedly uh, chasing after vice instead of virtue and throwing away opportunity. No, we're talking about how they're out in the cold and they can't find anything consistent to eat. And James says... James says that instead of rushing to help their genuine need, you give them some trite, spiritual-sounding answer about wishing them well as they enjoy God's fruitfulness. Go on your way. Be warmed. Be filled. A lot of people theorize that that might have been a popular benediction in those days that was frequently said around feast tables. So if you're gathering everybody together and having a big party You'd give this as a benediction. Be warmed and be filled, friends. And if that is true, man, it doesn't matter at all what it sounds like on the surface, like, use whatever vaulted spiritual language you want to try to use, you press through the facade, and you realize just how cruel that actually is to say that. Like even if it's not a popular benediction, At the very least, when when faced with a genuine need by someone who's supposed to be spiritual family to this guy, James' hypothetical person offers up empty words that not only don't help, but actually mock the help that they actually need. Let me say something that should not be controversial. It does not matter what title this hypothetical guy claims for himself. He's not actually their spiritual brother, right? Doesn't matter what comes out of his mouth, the claim is clearly false. And everybody witnessing it going on understands the situation. Everybody witnessing this going on can see it. And then James says that faith by itself, if it does not come with works entail, is dead. Equally uncontroversial, or should be equally uncontroversial it does not matter what you claim for yourself authentic faith has a certain look to it regardless of what comes out of your mouth real faith has a measurable effect and everybody witnessing it play out can see it and so if you're thinking to yourself well yeah i mean you know i mean to each his own right uh, what works for one guy it may not necessarily work for the next guy. Stephen, haven't you ever heard about personal truth? James anticipates that somebody would be dumb enough to try to answer his rhetorical questions. So he keeps going in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. All right, so James suspects that someone in his audience might try to continue drawing a hard line between, uh, kind of a line of separation between uh, faith and works. Or or we could say instead, call it instead, the difference between uh, beliefs of faith and the actions of faith. And if that's a confusing dichotomy for you, don't worry. We're going to come to that here more in a second when we get to the next few verses. But for right now, here's what you need to know. Uh, In verse 18, James calls their bluff. He says, show me. Show me, okay, okay. Let me see an example then. You you go ahead, show me what faith looks like without any action at all to back it up and then when you're done, I'll show you some stuff that actually proves the presence of true faith. So he says. He says, congratulations, you claim a mental assent of some very good things, but you know what company that puts you in? The demons. Congratulations. You've reached the same level of belief as demons. You're nailing this. Good job. James quotes a very tiny part of what we call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? The second half of of the Shema is something we actually talked about last week. Jesus quotes the second half when he's asked what the greatest commandment is. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So James quotes the grand statement of belief for Israel. Like there's no higher statement of belief for them. It is the thing to say, to say that you believe the right things. A faithful Jew had no higher claim. And it's a good statement, right? It was good and right for Israel to make that something that they repeated daily and taught diligently to their children. James doubles down on that truth. He says, you do well. It's a good statement. But um, even, even the demons rightly understand who God is. That's not complicated. That's not hard. They understand his holiness. They understand his power. They understand his majesty. They have a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done in his death on the cross and his raising from the dead. They know all that stuff. In fact, when it comes to a correct understanding of Christian doctrines, the demons have you and I beat. They outclass us. It's not a matter of them simply not having gotten around to reading that theology book yet. No, they have experiential knowledge. They've experienced the holiness of God on a level that you and I haven't seen yet and won't see this side of eternity. But notice what James says that the, this correct understanding produces in them. He says they shudder. They shudder. They're appalled by his holiness. They run away from and reject his holiness. James's point. James's point is that salvation is not found in a right understanding of anything. The oneness of God or otherwise. Mental assent to the truths of the gospel is not, hear me, is not what reconciles you to God. If it were, the demons would be saved because they know it better than you. We're not called to a mental assent to the truths of the gospel, but rather we are called to an act of trusting in the truths of the gospel. A trusting that cannot but be naturally fleshed out in, our, in a trust-fueled and trust-filled action consistent with that faith. It can't help but be bottled up. For James, an authentic faith always leaves an impression. It leaves an impression on you, and it leaves an impression on everyone else around you. The sledgehammer will leave a mark. Oh but I mean, do you have any examples for me? Like show me somebody in the Bible who who worked as they believed. I need I need to see a story or two. Like where do we see faith and works working together like this? Well, James has got you covered because that's where it goes next in verse 20. Do you want to be shown you foolish person, what faith apart from works is that faith apart from works is useless? Useless? Excuse me. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, "Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness." And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right, guys, welcome to the Thunderdome. (laughs) Say hello to what everyone, I think probably correctly, assumes to be the most important text in the book of James. Meaning you understand this text, you understand the whole letter. Plant my flag on that one. You understand this text, you understand the entire book of James. This is the text that we've been kind of hinting at all throughout this series as we talk about people trying to put James and Paul on different gospel teams. This is the text that the Council of Trent referenced and the the counter-reformers all brought up over and over again in the Catholic Church as they rejected that salvation came by grace alone through faith alone. And this is the text that gave Martin Luther so many fits that he wished he could, quote, throw old Jimmy in the fire. This is our text. James says, if you want an example, like a real example of faith and work being inseparably linked. Okay, I'll give you an example. Boom, Abraham. You've heard of him, right? He had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. You ringing any bells? James points to the patriarch of the people of Israel, the father of fathers for the people of God. Abraham is as important to God's people as any one man can be. He's the the guy. And in verse 21, James says that Abraham was justified. He uses the word justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, maybe you're new to the church thing, new to the Bible. You have no idea who Abraham is. All right, That's going to be a really weird sentence to you that Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Yeah, that happened, all right? Uh, The story of Abraham is, I think, too lengthy to really dig into all the way in the little time that we got left. So let me give you what I think are the, you know, 30,000-foot highlights. All right, James comes... God comes to a pagan man named Abram, uh, living off in the land of Ur, doesn't know who God is. Uh, In Genesis 12, God comes to this man, Abram. He says, I'm going to make you mine, and I'll love you, and I will bless you, and I'm going to change your name, and I will turn your family into a great nation. In fact, I'm going to bless you to such an incredible extent that the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And Abraham's just like, okay, sounds like a great plan. Where are we headed? Abraham didn't earn that favor. He wasn't rightly positioned for the blessing to flow. No, God was just lavishly gracious to this man. Lavishly gracious. The only problem, at least in some people's eyes, is that Abraham and his wife Sarah were barren. It's really, really hard to make a giant family, a giant nation of people out of your family if you're not able to, you know, actually make a family. That's a difficulty for them. But to God that wasn't a bug, it was a feature. And so years and years and years go by, still no children. And then we get to Genesis chapter 15 and God reaffirms his promise. He even solemnizes his promise with a special ceremony where God owns all the responsibility on himself. If I don't forget about what you do, I'm doing this. We're told in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and that it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham still hadn't earned anything. In fact, we skipped right past a couple of stories where Abraham actually sins in incredibly grotesque ways. Abraham was a terrible guy. Fast forward, fast forward even more years, and God still hadn't given Abraham and Sarah a child yet. Abraham is 99 by this point, and the idea is starting to sound more and more and more preposterous. In fact, the story goes that. Sarah, eavesdropping on this conversation, laughs. She's too old for this. Are you kidding me? And that's the point. It's why the story is playing out the way the story is playing out. No one will get the credit for this but God alone. A year later, God finally gives them what they had waited so long for a son, right? They name him Isaac. They name him Isaac, the, the son of promise. God is indeed faithful. God does fulfill all of his good promises. What a story, right? But Abraham's story doesn't end there. Abraham's story keeps going. Fast forward some more. Isaac is now a teenager, a young man. And God comes to Abraham and says, Hey, I, I want you to kill Isaac as a sacrifice. Let's go. So, What do you do with that? Like, How's your morning going after you get that news? But Abraham still trusts God. And why wouldn't he? Look at all that God has done. All throughout his life. Look at where God had brought him to. Abraham doesn't know exactly how things will play out, but he knows that God is good and he knows that God can be trusted. And he also knows that God is powerful enough to undo all of the things if God wants to undo all of the things. So that's enough for Abraham. He's going, he's in. The story goes, that they get there, Isaac even notices that they don't have a ram to kill. He calls out in question. He's like, hey, don't worry, we'll handle it. They, they put everything together. Abraham puts his son on the altar, the son of promise. And right before, as the story goes, uh, right before he drops the knife, the angel of the Lord stops him and points to a ram stuck in a thicket, right? God, God put Abraham to the test, and he provided a sacrifice. Woo, what a story. And then James points to that story. Couple millennia later, James points to that story. Years and years and years after Abraham first trusted the Lord, years and years and years after uh, we're told that Abraham's faith was already counted to him as righteousness, and in James uh, in verse twenty-two, James says that faith was active along with Abraham's works, and that faith was completed by his works. So, what does that mean? Well, that word "completed." means to bring something to fulfillment to bring it to to arrive at maturity i think that james is saying that abraham's faith was brought to its full measure when he was finally given the opportunity to act on that faith in a tangible way and that before that moment it was something unproved at least to those who couldn't see abraham's heart But now, post Genesis twenty-two, everybody can see it. Not a soul doubts it. It's obvious, and everybody that that's witnessing it play out can tell. So, are James and Paul actually preaching different gospels or not? I really don't think they are. I really don't think they are. Um, I think they're speaking to vastly different contexts about pretty much the exact same thing. Uh, You cannot merit salvation by any kind of work, period. You cannot merit salvation by any kind of work, but neither can you separate what you believe from what you do. They're not separable like that. Faith is not opposed to work. No, faith is opposed to earning, and those are not the same thing. A commentary that I've used a good bit throughout this series is called Exalting Jesus in James. I'm going to quote a big paragraph from there because they're smarter than me. It says, We have no reason to shrink back from either James or Paul because they do not contradict one another. Each of them is writing about the exact same gospel, yet they are writing from different vantage points, and they are addressing different problems in the churches to whom they are writing. I don't picture James and Paul standing toe-to-toe with each other with contrary understandings of the gospel. Instead, they are standing back-to-back to to each other, fighting two different enemies, and together defending a unified understanding of the gospel. Paul is fighting against uh, the false idea that we can earn our salvation with our works, which, by the way, is the exact same battle that Luther was fighting in the Reformation when confronting the teachings of the Catholic Church. James, on the other hand, is fighting against an easy believism that had reduced salvation to intellectual belief. So, which battle are we fighting today? The answer is both. They say the answer is both. Speaking to an audience that was mired in open public debate about what was and was not on the list of things that God's people are supposed to do, James has some folks that he's got to address that are jettisoning off every single thing they can find as no longer being binding on them, acting as if personal holiness and a practical pursuit of righteousness before God don't matter. And James is like, yeah, they actually matter. I don't know if you thought this through all the way, they actually matter a ton. To claim faith without the natural fruit that's born out of faith, it empties that public profession of anything that's remotely believable. Regardless of what comes out of your mouth, real faith has a measurable effect on you. And on everyone else around you, and everybody witnessing that faith play out can see it. But if Abraham isn't a sufficient enough example for you, James tags a really quick one on to the end of that. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Right, so James gives a very, very quick uh, kind of nod to the story of Israel conquering uh, the city of Jericho. Uh, maybe you read that story, maybe you haven't. Rahab was a prostitute in the city. She hid the, the Hebrew spies coming in, helped them escape, and she did it because she believed that the, the God of Israel was the true God and when she she wanted to switch teams. All right, that's how that works. And so the question is, and it's a massive question, when was Rahab saved by God? When did that happen? Was it the specific moment of decision-making in her head when she said, yes, I'm going to do this? Or was it when she actually hid the spies and snuck them out of the city? When did God save her? And James argues here that to try to draw a sharp line between those two moments is something that God doesn't do. God doesn't draw a line between those two moments. You're splitting something up that God doesn't split up. Rahab's faith is real before her actions. It is 100% real, but it is also brought to completion and fleshed out by her actions. It is proved by her actions. Rahab Rahab did not earn her salvation by sneaking the spies out of the city. But what good would her inward decision-making be if she never did that? If she hadn't acted on it, what would that moment in her head have actually been? Would it have been real? Or would it have been nothing but an empty promise? A moment of noble-sounding intentions that eventually got revealed as hypocrisy. So in verse 26, James says this. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. So as a pastor, I have, I'll use the word privilege to be a part of a number of, much larger number of funerals than most people get to experience. I, I, I just one of, one of the parts of the job, which means I've seen a lot of caskets, and I've seen a lot of people in caskets. I feel like I can speak with some experiential authority here. I have never, and I mean ever, walked up to a casket and thought to myself, "Yep, that's them." Never. Not even once. Funeral homes, I think, do an amazing job uh, trying to work to preserve and show honor to the body. I think everything humanly possible that they can do to, to, to do those nice things for a family. They, they do a good job most of the time. But listen, it doesn't matter how good you are at makeup. You cannot make a lifeless body look like it's filled with life. It, it's a body in a casket. Makeup artists can't get them. You can't fake that. You can fake a lot of stuff, but you can't fake that. The same is tr- true for faith proven out by works. You, c- you can't fake that either. The idea that someone could have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord is one of the most unbiblical ideas to ever weasel its way through the modern church. And James's argument here is that that dead faith is as powerless to actually save you as a dead body would be to sit up and give you a hug. It's a pipe dream. Are you kidding me? It's a ridiculous notion. I said last week that James doesn't bring all of this up to cast doubt on people's salvation. He doesn't say that to, to scare those who are wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus and wrestling with sin that they're working to overcome. But at the same time, it, I, I think he also does kind of mean to scare us. I think that's buried in his tone here. Jesus And another time talked about seed being planted among shallow soil. It springs up and then withers away the moment life gets hard. Paul talks about hearts that have been calloused to our sin and now justify things that are displeasing to God. All three of these guys, I think, seem to be saying that that those things are not real faith. We're playing games here, but they're not real faith. They're not saving faith, which means that they are ultimately a worthless faith. Faith that does not go to work. Does not work at all. And so, if you're in a place this morning where I don't know, maybe maybe you think God is revealing a disconnect to you, and I, I think out of a great love for you. James would have you be worried about that, for your good, not not for your ill, but for your good. Do something with it. <laughs> Do something with it. If you if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, your response. It's to meet Him. It's to meet Him. If you, if you haven't noticed yet, I, I try really, really hard to never, uh, I, I never ask if people are Christians here. There's a reason for that. It's because we can play games with titles, right? And So we, we talk about the action piece. Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you actually placed your faith in Him? A faith that forever changes what you chase after, forever changes what you value. If not, man, I'd love to introduce you to Him this morning. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God. Um, That's the default. And that because of that sin, we are all owed the just and right punishment for sin, death. But God is rich in mercy. He loves you with a great love. And the Bible teaches that that even as, as those who are dead in our trespasses and sin, that God, through the grace of Jesus, makes us alive, spiritually alive. How? The eternal Son of God put on flesh and He dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that I can't live and you can't live. and Perfectly obedient before the Father. And He died on the cross as an innocent substitute uh, to make full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. Even if you've got a long list of other religious actions in your past. Listen, if God is calling you to make it right today, let's get after it. I'm here. Let's go. I'm I'm here for it. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? Not perfect, of course not. Still Failing in sin on occasion, just like Abraham did after God declared him to be righteous. Abraham didn't get his life cleaned up after God called him righteous. He was still a jerk. He was still a moron. He still messed up over and over and over again. But like Abraham, we must repent of the sin in front of us and get to work living consistently with what we say we believe. Bring our faith to its completion. I don't know what that looks like for you. I wish I could give you better answers than that. I just, I don't have them. What I can give you is three verses and a bridge. Some time to respond on your own and maybe you can get there. You've got a few minutes to chew on it. If you want to talk, I'll be down front if you want to talk. Or maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Uh, maybe you've been here for a while. You've been checking us out as a church and God has convinced you that this is the place he would have you call home. And so it's time to come forward and formally join our church family. We've got a process for that. It's not something that we would do right now, but take the step. It's a good day to take the step. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a little while now, but for whatever reason you haven't been obedient to his command to be baptized yet. We can remedy that too. know how to get that done. Or maybe, maybe God is calling you to take the gospel to somewhere far away from here and it's time to make that calling public. The best part of my day would be helping you think through what those next steps are. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for incredibly weighty warnings in the book of James. Guard us from being those who profess faith but never live faith. And No, we cannot earn. and We cannot sweeten the deal we want to be, actually be, who you've called us to be. Who you've declared us to be. And God, we're not strong enough to do that on our own. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need new hearts that love what you love and hate what you hate. But you're good enough to get us there. Just like you were good enough to get Abraham there, despite his failures. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, whether they have been doing the church thing for five minutes or 50 years, would you call men and women into your kingdom today? Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.